Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds and today I'm talking with Caroline Sumlin. Uh, Caroline is a writer, speaker, educator, and author of We'll All Be Free, How a Culture of White Supremacy Devalues Us and How We Can Reclaim Our True Worth. Caroline, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Now, I, I want to start, and I, and I hope this doesn't sound confrontational because I don't mean it that way, but there are so many books that have been written in recent years about white supremacy, racial reconciliation from both you know secular and Christian perspectives. Mm-hmm. So in your mind, what makes your voice and what makes this book be different enough and stand out enough that uh, it's something new adds to the conversation from everything that's already been said? I love this question. This is... Um... Let me start over. I love this question. <laughs> I apologize. I love this question. I, I have like my brain went in seven different directions to answer the question. So I, I spoke two sentences at once. Um, my book is specifically about how white supremacy culture causes us as um, as individuals and as a collective society to feel unworthy as humans and what we can do about it. And it's an approach to white supremacy culture that has not, I have never seen this been done before. We know about white supremacy culture, there's been research done about it. I mean, it's not, it's not talked about as much as systemic white supremacy is, and there is a difference there. So yes, there's a lot, you're right. There's a lot of books out there about systemic white supremacy. There's a lot of books out there about how systemic white supremacy and systemic racism causes um, um, the, uh, the disparities between um, the black community and the white community and other communities of color specifically in America, but also um, globally. Yes, we can go on and on about that, but who has actually talked about how white supremacy culture has impacted the way that we see ourselves and impacts every single one of us, regardless of what our racial identity is or what our gender expression is or anything, um, any other um, identity we may um, we may carry or we may hold. Um, and while those, while it will affect all of us differently, depending on what our, um, where we kind of lie, I guess, within society, um, it does impact us. And a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people don't realize or make a connection to how the culture of our society and the things that we believe in and the, and the morals and the values that we carry and the standards that we uphold ourselves to, a lot of people don't make those connections to number one, white supremacy, and number two, even how it is negatively impacting us. Um, so that's where my book comes in. And it's actually written a lot less, even though there's information in there, it's written a lot less textbooky and a lot more self-help booky <laughs> to, to, to make up words here. Um, so it's it's a lot of my story woven in there. There's, there's a lot of talk about healing and how do you heal from the way white supremacy culture has impacted you as a person and the lies that you've believed and the standards you believe you have to uphold yourself to. Um, there's journal prompts after every single chapter to lead you through this process of breaking up with white supremacy culture. And um, I follow up with not just hey, this is a problem, but here's something we can do about it in our own lives and how we can begin to make an impact as a society. And that is something that hasn't been done in many of the books as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. You know, when we have conversations like this, I think it's very important that we, we want to make sure we're communicating correctly. So I see a lot of the words get thrown around. They have no definitional meaning or value you know, woke. What does that mean? I don't know, but it gets attached to everything. It just means you're mad about it. Um, so but when you're talking about <laughs> white supremacy culture, yes. what do you mean by that? How would you define that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So white supremacy culture is the byproduct of systemic white supremacy. When you create a society, when the, when the powers that be, the government, the leaders, the people in power create a society from the founding, the founding fathers, quote unquote, so to speak, um, even prior to the founding fathers, but I'm just going to just, you know, put that out there as a baseline. And then from there, all of the structures and, and ordinances and, and ways that our society functions and decisions that have been made about our economy, about housing, about education, and 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 henceforth um, about popular culture, et cetera, are all based in in a racial hierarchy. All those decisions are made in, in that follow the racial hierarchy and and are made in order to maintain the racial hierarchy. From from that, well, first of all, from any society, from any structure, of society is going. There's a culture is going to come from that because those things are going to be ingrained in us. That's how that's how culture is created essentially. So within our culture, being one of systemic white supremacy we end up with a culture of white supremacy. And that culture is the way that we believe and the way that we act and the way that we think and the way we carry ourselves. And we do so in the standards we are upheld to in a way that essentially follows the rule that whiteness is superior and everything that we do and say and believe needs to follow that essential standard. And we see that in many different arenas of our culture in all different arenas of our culture in our society we see that in all the industries we see that in education we see that in the workforce we see it in healthcare we see it in popular culture in beauty culture in in the wellness industry and in diet industry every single subsection of our society upholds and perpetuates white supremacy both systemically and culturally so an example of that could be when i say whiteness is superior that, that we have to then de define what is whiteness. We have to define um, where that comes from. And and I do this in my book, um, but to kind of give you a, a quick summary, whiteness is the antithesis to blackness. Blackness was defined by colonization, essentially, um, by the colonizers. They they looked at Africans and they said, hey, these these Africans are, are insipid. They are behemoth. They are... Um, monkeys they are lazy they are gluttonous they they attach a lot of ca uh, um characteristics to to africans and to black people and then essentially said okay because those even though those none of those characteristics were true that was what was attached to blackness and to this day it is if you really look at the way we think about blackness that's what we think when we think about black people black the black culture the black community as a whole we think these negative things and we think that everything that is the opposite of that is the equivalent of whiteness when white people were essentially creating their race when they're creating that in america because the white race has been created over time the the narrative was hey in order to separate ourselves from those black people over there we have to make sure we are the um the epitome of intelligence we have to make sure we're the epitome of wealth we are the epitome of power we are the the epitome of beauty and we are the epitome of uh, and beauty thin like all of those characteristics that narrative was purposely placed on the white race so to speak and that was then attached to whiteness and so now the way that we view things the way we view what is right what is good what is standard is actually whiteness and we we believe that 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 eurocentric whiteness standard is exactly that is a standard that we need to be uphold upholding that that is superior to any other way of thinking of living of believing um in in, in our morals and our customs and things of that nature so that that is essentially what white supremacy culture is and it's something that's so ingrained in us that it becomes especially as as people that live in the western world it's, it becomes like our identity. So when we tell people like, hey, this is not necessarily the best thing in the world, 
there can be a lot of defensiveness around that. Because, and I get it. It's it's part of, it's the way you've been raised. It's ingrained in us. It's the water that we are swimming in, literally, white supremacy culture is. So I hope that helps a little bit um, for, for, for your listeners. And then, of course, you know, when you read the book, you'll be able to really dive deeper into what this means, what this looks like, what those characteristics are, so you can begin to understand it better. Yeah, because I, I feel like that a lot of people, just when when they hear white supremacy, they hear racism, they think like, right. oh, KKK, lynchings, you know, things of the past, whether they're actually of the past or not. But there is it's this idea of like, you know, avert racism, not mm-hmm. and they and that sort of separates them then, uh, particularly people who look like me, people who are white, to say like, well, I'm not that, so I Correct. must not be racist in in it, it you you don't think about well i'm i'm privileged um mm-hmm. you know historically you don't think about well you know i am the beneficiary of all of this this history mm-hmm. um you know just be just in or in, in the systems that remain that mm-hmm. you could have a system where there is no you know racist person but because the system itself is set up to privilege a certain group of people, then the system itself is racist. And if you are defending the system saying, hey, the system doesn't need to be changed, then, you know, you, you are participating and continuing that, that you know, that racist system. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that, that's kind of where we're at today that people are saying, well, me individually – I'm not racist. No, they might be. They, they, they I'm gonna say they probably are. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's not, you know, that. Well, I'm, I'm not that in the past. I'm like, well, that's mm-hmm. really, you know, that, that that's that's great. You're not a slaveholder. That's really the bare minimum, isn't it? You, <laughs> um, you know, don't don't pat yourself on the back for that. Surely you can do better. Uh, you know, but to to realize that, it, you know, it. It, it almost takes like a lot of white people, and this was this was me for a, a large part of my life, because you're majority culture, mm-hmm. you don't have to get real introspective about what you believe, how you became, how you came to believe it, uh, about what you do, or why that's why or why your majority culture is the majority. You you, you just don't have to think about it critically because you're not exposed to different cultures unless you go and seek those out intentionally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and kind of the expectation then when you do see those other cultures is they're not like me they should become like me right exactly into this system so when you're speaking to white people that really haven't done that introspective work how do you begin to have that conversation because we live in a day and age in which having this conversation is very difficult to even begin to have that because people are not willing to you know look within themselves and actually consider the perspective of a minority culture be it black asian you know lgbtq whatever it is that they're just not willing to look outside of their own perspective and their own privilege mm-hmm yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think we've always lived in a day and age where that, those conversations haven't really happened. I mean, we sometimes we think that because there was success with the civil rights movement that they must have been really, really um, willing to have those conversations back then. No, they weren't. 
No, they weren't. They were just as divisive and just as defensive then as they are now. The difference is legally, we they were able to argue some things to say, hey, it's unconstitutional, so we have to change some rules. But that didn't actually change anything about the way that people perceived um, people of color, specifically black people, and how they felt about people of color. It just changed the way that they were allowed to do what? To um, express that racism because of what was going to cost them their job, for example. Um, so it's really important to understand too, like, unfortunately, we have never been in a day and age where the conversations are just you know, ripening and and they're and everyone's just like ready to make a change. I do think there are more people in this day and age that are beginning to unlearn and beginning to be willing and open and, and ready to see things. And I do see some progress there. But you know, it that unfortunately that is still a minority of people. So to answer your question, you know, how how do you begin to have those conversations? Well, to not sound cliche, you you just kind of begin. But I think there's a couple things here. Number one, people people need to people people like to if if they're willing to, and of course you can't always make everybody willing to do something. That's just unfortunately is what it is. But even if someone has an ounce of just like wanting to understand, but are just really struggling with understanding. That's where you bring it back to the history. That's where you bring it back to the facts. And you take a look at things and the narratives that have been taught and then the what really happened, right? So a lot of people, you know, especially um, uh, people that are in the boomer generations and the silent generations and things like that, um, you know, they see history a certain way. They live through it. They think, well, I lived through that. So I, I know exactly, you know, what happened. But do you know the whole story about what happened? Do you know why a bill was written a certain way? Do you have you taken the time to look at what conversations were happening with those elected officials when certain decisions, economic decisions were being made? Um, have you stopped to wonder why um, certain um, bills were written that um, that uh, excluded domestic workers and excluded um um manufacturers because in 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 what the what that population was uh predominantly um at at that time so they might look at things and say well hey you know this this was ha this was done this was done this was done in history like we were able to make that work or we were able to take advantage of this bill and we were able to buy, buy a home um and and so so what like what's the problem here and realistically have you actually looked at kind of like the fine print have you actually dug deep and figured out what that meant and what that would have what that would have resulted in have you actually looked at why the certain narratives have been have been told specifically like when you get get into like the 80s and 90s about the way the way the black community is viewed nowadays it, the black community went from being viewed as um biologically inferior to morally inferior so from from um, enslavement times all the way up into through civil rights the idea was well black people are just biologically inferior we've proven this we've proven this with the skull theory we've proven this with with um with uh scores and and, and testing and all those things so obviously they're biologically inferior so that should justify the reason why they should be over there they should be segregated they shouldn't have this they shouldn't have that so when that became illegal 
the the shift was to a moral inferiority well they just black people they just they're just lazy they just they just need to do better in their 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 community if they just worked harder they would they would be better but have you actually taken a look at where that narrative you learned the narrative you probably heard it around the dinner table you probably heard it on the news you probably you probably learned it a little bit um in school maybe not directly but indirectly but have you actually taken a look at where that narrative came from and who started that who started that and 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 actually taken a look at what structurally would have happened to, to place black people in their positions that they that they were in that then allowed that narrative to, to to take place and to and to be created that that wasn't actually true so i think when you actually look at the facts the facts speak for themselves and it's very at that point if you're denying the facts then that's that's a chosen ignorance versus an actual ignorance mm -hmm. but you know convincing somebody to to look at the facts you you can only as as the saying goes you can you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them drink you can set the facts down and say hey here's some here are some books here are some ways that you can learn these things and when you're ready they'll be there for you you know mm -hmm. one of the things that you do in the book is you 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 mentioned this earlier you really interweave your own story and experience uh in, into that um that means that for you you had to really reflect on your own trauma, uh, mm -hmm. your own experiences. And that that's not an easy thing to do. So first of all, I want to commend you for that and for being willing to share that. Uh, because Thank you. you, you know, you don't owe anyone your story. You don't, you know, I, I, I feel like a lot of times there, there are some people who is like, well, educate me. Like, well, no, that's not, you know, that's not your job. You've chosen to do that. You've chosen to put your mm -hmm. story out there. And uh, I appreciate that because we can, we can learn from that. But I want to note how, you know, that puts you in a very vulnerable position to both yes. personally have to look back on those experiences. And then for those experiences, not just to be shared with you and your family and, you know, your circle of friends, but now it's in a book and it's going to be shared with, you're, you're hoping, millions of people. <laughs> and that's, you yes. know, uh, that can be, it can be a very scary thing. So as you're reflecting on that, as you're writing the book, and you're you're going through these experiences that you had as a you know child teenager young adult and so on um how did that what was that experience like for you and how did you choose to you know kind of curate your life story to make sure that you were you know telling this story in a way that was personal that also brought together the larger themes that you were writing about yeah thank you for that question Time out for a second. I'm sorry. I need to go unplug Alexa because she keeps saying <laughs> deck doors open because my husband is grilling and I forgot to unplug Alexa. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Sorry. You're going to edit yeah. this. I yeah. hope you're going to edit. Yeah, okay, I can do that. Hold on. <laughs> I am so sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes, it. It is definitely a vulnerable process. Um, I'm I'm feeling all of the scary feelings about the book being released in just a couple of weeks, and and a lot of the things in my in my story that I've shared are things that even my closest family members don't know about me or um, don't know that I would have felt those ways, even if they know the detail, they may not know um, the 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 more the trauma the and the and the pain behind those things so it's it's definitely a very 
vulnerable um, feeling that I, that I, it's, oh man, like I just feel like my heart is like on an, a, a table, like a surgery table, like an open heart surgery. Like I feel like I'm here and my heart's over there and I'm just kind of looking at it, getting kind of picked apart. That's physically how I'm feeling right now. But, you know, I think number one, when it came to I, I, I knew I always wanted to write the book this way because storytelling is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful mediums. And I think that will, that will never go away. I am a journalist at heart. I study journalism and journalism is the art of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as human beings. We all have stories to tell. And when we choose to tell our stories and, and show people that they're not alone or to be able to help them connect their own stories to certain things that's when connections happen that's when and even this kind of answers your last question a little bit that's when those aha moments start to really set in for people because we tend to look at our stories and our trauma as something that we've individually gone through and that nobody else will understand and that it's mine. I have to protect it or, or, um, or even blame ourselves for a lot of the things that we go through, that it's our fault that we feel a certain way or reacted a certain way or, or that that thing happened to me. And, and, and it's isolating and, and, and it, it leads, it furthers, um, a lot of the mental health things that we deal with when we're, when we're, um, living with those traumas. But, when you learn somebody else has, even if it's not the same thing that you've gone through, but gone through something or was impacted a certain way by something and can see that parallel, see the similarities there. And especially with this book, connecting it to society, my goal was for us all to see that even in our differences, even in our systemic and our identity differences, we are all human at the core of everything. That is, that is the goal here. We've all been through certain things. We've all been impacted by, by different things in our lives personally and by society. And no matter what our identities are or no matter where we stand within society, even though things are going to impact us differently, at the core of it, we are humans. And when you can connect human to human, I think that is one of the, one of the, the, we, we all, even, even the most stubborn, a hard-headed defensive person has that heart and has has their own story and will be able to to soften a little bit and break some of those walls down when they get that human to human connection so that's why i knew as difficult as it was for me to write the things that i wrote about and had to dig deep and and relive some really difficult moments and 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 think about how i'm going to express that in writing for so many people to see i knew that i i i couldn't not do it because that's the difference between a book that gives you the facts and yes those are important but then when you add that human connection i think that's when you really get some breakthroughs one of the things that i appreciate is that you know the book is called we'll all be free uh mm -hmm. which is, means that you know this 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 book isn't just about how do we dismantle white supremacy and bring justice and equity? But it's also appealing to the interests of white people to be like, mm -hmm. you are being held back as well. That there right. is something that when you when you engage with this system of white supremacy, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you are being affected by it. Though you know, morally, you're being affected by it. It the allowing uh, a system where certain people do not flourish affects your own flourishing mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and, th and this idea that like, you know, this isn't just about 
helping the marginalized and the oppressed. That right. that's that's part of it. But it's it's about this is this is about humanity across the board. This is everyone. So this there's no white saviorism here. You can't right. just do this because you feel like, well, I'm in this place of position and power and privilege and I should do it. Uh, but this is also a realization for the white person that this system of, of white supremacy, it may put you at the top of the, you know, the power scale, but it is harming you morally, culturally. It, it's leaving you deficient in all these ways, even if you don't realize it. Um, do you feel like that sort of way of going at things, because because then it, it you know it appeals sort of to the self-interest of a white person. Mm-hmm. is helpful in framing the conversation um, moving forward to get people to actually listen to that message. Absolutely. Humans are selfish. Let's be real. A lot of times it does, and 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 it's not, it doesn't mean that it always has to be this way, but a lot of times when we have a, a personal connection to something or we realize the way that something is impacting us, we care more, right? You can have sympathy for something that's going on but then once you are impacted by it or once you once you've lived it then then the empathy kicks in and then the and then your drive to want to do something about it kicks in right not to not to bring up like a like a touchy subject but you know say for example um you know you you let's just say let's just say that the 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 topic of breast cancer right you know we know oh my gosh i can feel like yeah breast cancer that's hard i know people that have had breast cancer oh oh you know i i i yes i'll you know i'll I'll race for the cure i'll i'll send a donation but then then you get breast cancer and then all of a sudden your approach to how you think about breast cancer is totally different because now you've lived it and 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 now you're like well well, this this is this is beyond terrible this is this is this ha- there we have to do something about this. I I I've I physically have gone through this misery. So when we realize that we're all collectively walking through this misery of white supremacy culture, and you realize that it's impacting you, that you yourself are are suffering, that you're being held back, as you said, by white supremacy culture, it will absolutely cause you to feel like a lot more inclined to to want to be a part of the the dismantling and the and the rebuilding of a society that allows everybody to flourish versus the just the 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 top few percent um of of the of the white social hierarchy so um yeah i do think that and that's why i chose to to do it that way that's why in the very beginning of my book i say um you know you might be wondering like who is this book for is it is it for me like is it for a black woman like what is this book for it's for you it's for every single one of us is that that's what the book is for and it's it's hard to write for such a large audience i've had another question like how did you write for everybody like believe me it was not easy but like i said in the last answer at the core we are all humans Hmm. at the core of who we are we are all humans and so once we realize human to human that we are all suffering here then we all are going to want to do something to end that suffering yeah I think it goes back to when I when I kind of reflect on my own past. You know, I absolutely I I grew up in in rural Indiana, just white, 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 white. Um, you know, I really didn't know someone who who wasn't white closely until high school. You know, it wasn't and it wasn't until I got out and and you know went to university and kind of got out into the world, the larger world, that you know it it wasn't that like the 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 racial systems that I had ingrained in me, it, it wasn't done necessarily with bad intentions. It was just, it was, it was by default. 
It was, right. this is, this is everyone. Uh, and then, and then you get out and you, and you actually learn from the perspective of other people. You know, I, I, I graduated from seminary. I became a pastor at a Chinese church in a place that was primarily uh, black and Hispanic. So it's like, suddenly I'm thrown into, you know, all of this, all of this mix that I've just not experienced before. Mm. And it was through engaging with those stories of other people and learning their experiences, their backgrounds, their perspectives. That's like, oh, man, I have all, you know, I, I have to change the way that I, the way that I think and the mm. way that I, you know, the, the way that I have approached things. Um, I, I, now I'm, now I'm able to see things through that other person's perspective by hearing their story, by, by having those relationships. You can only do that when you're, when it's, we'll all be free. When we all come together and are, in, are engaged in that mission. You, you, you can't do that. You can't do the work of racial reconciliation and, and stay segregated or, or have the mentality that, well, I'm the privileged person, you're the oppressed, but I'm going to lift you out of that. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of that that happens. I feel like um, you and, and and maybe I think I I feel like I first started seeing this with the murder of, of George Floyd. All of a sudden, there were a lot of white people who were very interested in social justice and did not know, a, did not have a clue about what they should be doing, and and their white voices were drowning out a lot of. Uh, experienced uh, black and brown voices, you know, it's like you had all of a sudden you just had this, you know, this all these people running up and saying, you know, we're white and we're here to help, which traditionally (laughs) has not been a great statement throughout history. Mm -hmm. Uh, What 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 would you say to someone who's like, you know, they're they're passionate, they're they they're heartbroken over this you know, injustices that they are now coming to learn about. They're trying to change. They're trying to do something different. Um, where, where should they begin as a way of, you know, repentance and education moving forward? Where, where do we even start? I would say start with decolonizing your own thinking, decolonizing the way that that's where, that's where the self, the self work has to come first. You can't just jump, head first into doing something ready to save the world and you haven't worked on yourself yet have you worked on the way that you are um your default ways of thinking your default um cultural morals and values and that's exactly what my book walks you through like how do you actually break up with this how do you how do you change the way that you look at standards how the way how do you change the way you look at perfectionism professionalism elitism classism ageism ableism you have to do the work to recognize that your default way of thinking your majority way of thinking is is not necessarily the best way of thinking and it's certain and not that it's always bad but it doesn't it's not the best because this idea that it is the best that it is the one right way to approach life is what has gotten us where we are today and it's realizing no my way of thinking in the way that i was brought up is is one approach to things that and and that that approach in some aspects can be okay in some aspects and many more aspects has harmed many, many people, many, many communities, um, predominantly of, of color, but also the disabled community, the, the LGBTQ community, et cetera. So how do I 
decolonize that thinking, decolonize that behavior, decolonize my default tendencies. Let me do that first. Because when you've done that work to decolonize that and to and to begin approaching life in a global mindset, a global worldview, in a cultural, um, a, a culturally conscious worldview, that that work begins to do itself. And it's not necessarily a saviorism at that point. You see what I'm saying? It's it's not I'm here to help and save and still perpetuate white supremacy culture while I do that. It is. No, I'm taking a step back and I'm realizing, okay, the way that I've approached this all of my life needs re needs rewiring. And now that I'm doing that rewiring, the way that I'm approaching it is different. Thus, in in its in its it's decolonized. It's it's like I said, it's it's global. And and as a result, that work can then have that that ripple effect. I would say that's a place a great place to start. I want to I want to talk a bit for about adoption. Uh, you were mm -hmm. you were adopted as a as a young child. How did that form you as a person, and what role do you think that white supremacy culture played in that? Mm. Adoption, man, there are. I so wish adoption wasn't so much a part of my identity and and who I am and and the way that I think. But it it has been the. Um, the first lens in the way that I approach life has been through adoption. Um, and I didn't realize that for so long. I didn't realize that until I was adult, until I was an adult, excuse me, that I, the way that I approach people, the way that I approach my emotions, the way that I approach um, the way that I do things, the way that I look at myself, view myself has, has all been through this lens of, of being adopted and feeling as though people people expect adoptees to feel more special and more valued because wow like you were saved and and look you got this this second chance and somebody came and and thought that you were so loved and worthy to just save your life but an adoptee is over here like actually the person that i was that i was um born to either didn't want me or wasn't able to take care of me and therefore i was a mistake and why am i even here in the first place so it's not what it's not what what people expect it to be and as a result that that fear of abandonment that fear of of um not being good enough to to be loved um to be cared for to be to be um to be removed or or shifted or or something at any moment not really ever feeling safe and secure and, and stable all of that has been um the way that i have essentially approached life and it's going to take a lifetime to essentially rewire that thinking um the best the best that i can lots of lots of therapy involved with that one when it comes to to white supremacy and in, in the beginning of my book i actually compare white supremacy to adoption in, in two ways number one it's realizing that white supremacy plays a very big role in why so many families aren't able to stay together in the first place especially when you look at the the demographics of of the adoptees and and the and the disparities there between the white community and the black and brown community the indigenous community um as far as adoptees are concerned and and why that takes place and and what is it that would cause um so many families to to not be able to care for the children that they that they give birth to and we are uh trained to believe that it is a 
a moral thing. It is a behavioral thing. It's a choice. Well, you ma you made a choice. You shouldn't have had a child if you couldn't take care of it or if you were going to make bad decisions. And if that was all a you thing. No, that that is widely systemic. That it is there is there are systemic reasons why the the poverty and crime and and addiction rates are where they are and what they are and and um and other injustices as as, as well that end up leading to to um children being removed from their homes for for whatever reasons so it's it's um when i first of all i've when i was able to to kind of approach it that way too specifically with my my biological parents who are both um intellectually disabled and and living in poverty it helped me to have a little bit of a of a forgiveness there as well thankfully like a little bit of a freedom there to realize like this was not something that they asked for they didn't do this to themselves they didn't make a poor choice in having me this was the, the odds were stacked against them and they weren't given the, the the resources and the care that they could have been given um had they been a different skin color and of different um economic privilege so that's that's how that allowed me to approach things a little bit more freely um in that and then also understanding too that white supremacy culture then comes into play no matter what our 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 traumas our traumas are be it adoption or or anything else that you you've you've gone through um white supremacy culture kind of comes in and, and kind of takes the things that you've gone through and kind of runs with it right so if you have this uh predisposition to feel like you're not enough because you're adopted but then all of society constantly is telling you that you're not enough because you're not smart enough you didn't get the good grades you didn't you don't look a certain way you're not strong enough you you're not productive enough you didn't wake up at five o'clock in the morning you didn't get 17 things done today you only got 15 things done today you didn't have your atomic habits in line you didn't right you didn't get the, the the test score whatever that is then society is supremacy culture is essentially constantly feeding that narrative that you already are believing about yourself because of the trauma that you have endured so it's twofold there's systemic white supremacy that a lot of times is directly linked to a lot of the trauma that we've gone through it doesn't have to just be adoption it can be abuse it can be um it can be uh, trauma that we go through in our in our in our childhood with our with our parents and the way that they've raised us. A lot of those things are are also connected to systemic white supremacy. And then you have white supremacy culture kind of kicking you while you're down and making it worse and feeding the narrative. And and then and it's just it's just a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> and to wrap that up, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if I I have I have two adopted children who who are not white, and from the. I, I I still remember the 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 caseworker. This this is an infinite option, um, but the the caseworker telling me, um, yeah, oh, you know, like God saved her for something wonderful, and I was like, mm. being a human being that's alive is enough. Like that doesn't have to do it. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it, it's enough just to be. And, yeah, and yeah. The, the whole the whole experience just sort of like really left this this really like white saviorism vibe uh, with us that that we didn't like at all uh, and we have a have a, a good relationship with her with her birth family uh we don't mm. talk to the agency <laughs> anymore mm. um but just the you know going into that world when we when we when we started that journey, we know it was what God was calling us to do. And mm -hmm. we had to reframe the way that we thought about adoption through the process and mm -hmm. in grappling with things like 
well, if you adopt a white child, it's it's going to cost you this amount. But if you adopt a black child, it's going to cost less. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you're like, that's, you know, and, and 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 you know, and you can put it crassly, it was supply and demand. But that's all part of that that system of supremacy, both explicit and implicit. And, uh, you, you know, it was thing, things that we very naively went into as as feeling like God was calling us into adoption and not realizing all the work that we would have to do on ourselves to then grapple with. This is a very imperfect community because adoption is always it always begins in trauma there. there you know, there is no heroic story here. Right. It, it is just it. it's you dealing with this is going to be something that is traumatic and it needs to be expressed like that um you know how do we because i feel like you know it, we we get this adoption imagery in scripture you know that god you know we've been adopted as sons and daughters of god we were now a part of god's family and that's very you know triumphant and that, that is a heroic story um how do we need to, to reframe or how do we reframe how we think about adoption today and to say that there is times where this is necessary this is necessary but it is not what we wish would be right makes sense yeah, exactly. We, we desperately wish things were different. We desperately mm-hmm. wish families would stay together. We believe that that is what God intended. Um, mm-hmm. But this world is broken, and, right? And this is this is now the best way forward. How how do we ensure that that is what actually happens? And then how do we talk about both both to adoptive children, to adoptive parents, to the to the wider community. How do you think we begin to have those conversations to reframe the entire structure of adoption? It's it's a simple question. I know. I'm sure you can <laughs> um so one thing that completely just wrecked me in the best way was when one of my um, friends online, uh, she's also a white adoptive mother to a black adoptive daughter, and she does, they do a lot of work in foster care reform and the same thing, reframing these conversations and helping people to understand that this is not white saviorism and et cetera, et cetera. She's a wonderful person. And one day she said, adoption is never, was never the will of God for a child to be separated from their first family. It was never God's will. That's not what he would want. That's not, that wasn't his design. And that completely wrecked me because I had always felt like, why would God want this for me? Mm-hmm. Why would God choose for me to be the the baby of two intellectually disabled adults? I, I that um, Why? Like, I, I felt like, what was I being punished? Like, what was up, you know? And when I when I heard that, it made so much sense. That wasn't God's will for me. That was the result of of our of our broken world and and and, and broken in, in so in so many ways. Um, that that's that's just what happened. And that's we can we can say that about many things, right? If we were talking about, you know, um, somebody who 
to not to not to keep using like an example of somebody getting sick, but I don't know why that's just what's coming to me. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit, but um, you know, somebody gets sick and that wasn't what they would wish for, right? What's absolutely necessary treatment? What's that's necessary, right? You that's something that needs to be done. You didn't wish it, you didn't want it, it wasn't God's will for you, it just happened. And so the necessary thing is 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 treatment. Does treatment help? Is treatment helping to 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 in some instances save your life or or to improve your quality of life or to allow you to to live with the illness that you have? It is. Does that mean that you would have wanted the illness in the first place? That it was God's will for you to live like this? Absolutely not. So I think we can approach it similarly in that this is something that's necessary. And this is the way that we're feeling called to 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 grow our family or not, I don't say grow our family, but it's the way we feel called to parent. It's, it's how we're feeling called to parent is a better way to put it. Um, but we're not doing this because we are saving this child, that this child needs us to, to save them because that puts into your mind almost this um, this entitlement as well to to the children and and that's that's not okay would you feel the same way about your own biological children no you wouldn't feel that way so you shouldn't be treating your adopted children like that either um and you shouldn't be essentially have this ascent this mindset towards them and in that you know that 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 you're um that that you're that you're doing something for them and that they almost owe you in 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 a way um, that that's never no no children, regardless of who their parents are, asked to be here. They didn't ask to be here. You know, none of us technically asked to be here. We are here, and 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 parents have to understand that that we cannot approach children in such a way where they owe us anything as as parents. And so, whether it be biological or adopted children, I think that's one of the the, the best ways to start. Is that your your child didn't ask to be here but now you are their parent. And so you need to parent them as such and not treat them as if, you know, they're entitled to you or that you are saving them from something because of the way that you ended up um, bringing them into your family. Um, I mean, I feel like there was more, there was more to your question. Um, if you want to clarify or repeat part of the question, please do. I may have missed something there. Um, but those were some of the first things that came to mind with that. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think you captured it. Um, yeah, I think you I think you captured it well. It's being a being an adoptive parent. You you see so many toxic traits mm-hmm. that people have when it comes to adoption, um, and it's you know, and and that we're just talking about domestic adoption. You know, international adoption is a whole nother, mm. you know, ball game as well. That's a whole nother right. like, aspect. Uh, mm-hmm. things. Um, you know, it's just so many people, and then and this goes back. This this relates back to to the issue of, uh, of of racism as well. So many people have good intentions, um, but terrible ways of following through. Like, you know, I, I don't think it nobody in, engages in in that work and is like well you know i i want to rip a child away from their family mm-hmm. uh, but effectively that's that's what you end up doing when you say promote adoption over social programs that allow families to to stay together 
mm-hmm. and then that that sort of thing privileges those who have the the wealth and the and the power or the community that can then you know care for that child. So you end up fe- feeling like, oh, I I you know I was able to do this this wonderful thing, um, but it was not. It was it was it was a good thing, but it wasn't necessarily the best thing. You know, it's the idea if you if you keep pulling people out of the river, but you never go up a stream and figure out why they're falling in the water, uh, mm-hmm. you're not you're not you're not addressing the systemic root of the actual problem. Right. Um, something that you you know write about in the book is that there were so many people that they're you're, we're trying to reform the system from within, mm-hmm. and you just it doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere with it. Um, how do we get outside of that system to be like, you know, we need to create something new. I, I think I'll end with that. We, we've been, we've been talking for quite some time. So I'll, I'll let you end with that one. Um, you know, how do we find out, you know, what, what do we do instead of reform? How do we go outside the system and try to create something that's new and different and vibrant and more flourishing? Well, first, I think it under- we have to understand that it's it's not an overnight thing. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of time because you have to think about how long it took us to get to where we are in the first place. So we have to approach the work with the understanding that it, we're not going to see the fruit in our lifetime, and that's okay. But a lot of times I think we get frustrated and we want results right now, and so we want to just reform within the system and just keep it moving. And it's not that within system reform isn't sometimes necessary, right? For example, you take police brutality, you need the justice The you want when, when something happens, you want the, the police officers to be brought to justice accordingly. But much like the river example, that's still not actually taking the entire system and rebuilding it. It's just a one-off, um, you know, bringing to justice. So it's a both and situation. There are things that we do need to do to reform within um, in order to to yield some results in some very dire um, circumstances as as quickly or as effectively as we can um, because it's just that important. But at the same time, we need to be doing the work to rebuild the system. And it's going to take a lot of different things. One, it's going to take us doing some things within our own as I say, spheres of influence in our own communities about taking that same decolonized way of thinking and now taking it to your your school boards and your churches and your groups and your family and actually applying the, the practices of a decolonized way of doing something um, or an anti-white supremacy culture. So um, in my book, I talk about five tenets of white supremacy culture, um, patriarchy, racism, um, classism, for example, those are three of them. And I talk about how you look for those characteristics of what they are and, and what the antithesis of those would be. And so if you were to, for example, do the antithesis of patriarchy within your home, how are you approaching um, certain things within your family that, um, that essentially flip patriarchy on its head. So you may have been doing some things a certain way. Now we're flipping the balance of, not the balance of, yeah, the balance of power. We're, we're um, essentially leveling the playing field a little bit. We're, we're letting our children know that, you know, they have, they have a voice, that they have um, a say-so, that they have autonomy, that they, you know, that these are some examples that, that, that could be. What that will lead to is, 
is your children growing up and and then um you know bring it well that, that could lead to them not even just within when they grow up but that could lead to them bringing that that way of thinking into their schools that could lead to them you know um uh looking at their at their classmates and making sure that everyone has a voice when they're working on a team project or or everyone um has a say so when when they are um making decisions um in in their in their child world and then growing up to to bring those same um mindsets in the same way practices into their workplaces and 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 it it ends up spreading right and then we have those mindsets and and those decolonized um practices and then we are the people that are in that end up in those positions so that can be okay well you know you tomorrow you you may not be able to go run for office tomorrow but people that are around you, your children, um, et cetera, they, they may be the ones to end up in those positions of power that will end up um, having the ability to rework and, and, and rebuild um, the system. So it, that's when I say it's something that's going to take a long time. It's going to, it's, it's realizing that those, like, like in our parenting, for example, you're teaching your child, um, you know, how to, how to regulate their emotions. And you've been working on deep breathing since they were two, but they finally deep breathe when they're eight, right? Like you finally see it like, oh yeah, it worked. You know, you keep doing it every single day and you keep practicing and you keep practicing and you keep practicing, but then you finally see the result of that. I think that's how it's going to, it's going to be here. Um, it's going to, it's, it's, it's gotta be that that approach and, and and believing that there there will be a ripple effect as well. That's why I hope that this book does end up in in as many hands as possible because I believe that hey, if everyone who's reading the book is then going forth and 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 doing these things and in in working on that dismantling um, of white supremacy culture in their spheres of influences, there will be ripple effects that will actually begin to take place. Again, we may not see it in our lifetimes, but I do believe that it can happen. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to, to be on the podcast. And again, the book is We'll All Be Free, How a Culture of White Supremacy Devalues Us and How We Can Reclaim Our True Worth comes out in just a couple of weeks. So are you doing anything uh, special for the for the book launch? Oh, man, uh, not right now. Um, I've we'll see. It's it's I didn't realize how hard that that was to do mm-hmm. to, to, to do a book launch or to. To, to do a party if you want to. So I'm working on some things. We'll see if if I end up just going to dinner or if I end up having an actual launch event. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, it's definitely, definitely worth your time. Uh, there, you know, there, there's, again, we, we began this conversation by saying there's so many books out there that mm-hmm. you can choose to read. Uh, but this one comes at it from a perspective that you may may have not seen before. So it's definitely worth checking out. Thank you so much. I appreciate that.